It was on a February day, almost to the day, maybe 31 years ago, uh, Mike Tyson was getting ready to take on former heavyweight champ Evander Holyfield. It was an iron Mike, an iron fist, and the heavyweight champ. And the reporters were all asking Mike Tyson one thing. They were saying, hey, this is a little different fighter for you. This is a guy who's got some elusiveness and some lateral movement, some side to side. And, and so the reporters were all getting on him. And, and Mike Tyson looks at the reporters and he says perhaps the most profound thing ever that he spoke. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I love that quote. I love it. I love it. And it made me think, does, is, is Mike Tyson, is he maybe like a history buff too, maybe about World War II, because uh, the D-Day invasion of Normandy, the American Allied Forces amassed the greatest, uh, the largest armada in history, like 6,500 vessels, thousands of soldiers, and they have plans, you know, on reams of paper, like two feet thick. And then they hit those beaches, and those plans, they all went up in smoke. And it led one military expert to conclude, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Right, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I love these quotes, not just, not just because of sports or not just about war or things like that, but I think that they're actually relevant to our life and to our faith. I think about my own life and I often think like, you know, when life's going well, my plan's working for me. I'm working the plan, the plan's working for me, things are going really well, and then all of a sudden something maybe surprises us. Maybe something big, maybe it's a major illness, or maybe we lose a job, or maybe we lose someone we love, or who knows, maybe a global pandemic sneaks up on us, right? And all of a sudden our plans are just kind of thrown out the window, or maybe it's something smaller. You get passed over for a job promotion, Maybe a good friend says something insensitive to you, kind of throws you off, or maybe you're just on your way to work and you're running late and you get stuck in traffic and you've got this meeting and you're going to be late for the meeting and, oh man, now what? Or maybe you pour water all over your keyboard on your computer, lose all your documents. It's like, oh, my plans are ruined. How do I find a way forward and how do I activate my faith to move forward in faith? John 17, Jesus and his, uh, Jesus turns to his father and he actually prays for his followers. Uh, and I believe that Jesus' prayer and the way God answers uh, his prayer to the disciples, their response to it shows us the way forward in our faith. Uh, that's the name of this series, The Way Forward. Today we're wrapping it up. We've been through John 14, 15, 16. We're at John 17 today. And again, Jesus has been spending this time. It's the most traumatic time in his life and the lives of his disciples. Things are chaotic. And, and so he's shared this final meal with them. And he's washed their feet. And he's said, one, one of you is going to betray me. And he's told Peter he's going to deny him. And he said, the rest of you are all going to walk away. In other words, you're about to get punched in the mouth. And your plan will not survive contact with the enemy. And of course, they're discouraged and they're in denial and they're disappointed and all this stuff. And so Jesus is trying to encourage them and he's trying to instruct them. And then in John 17, he actually prays for them. Every word in this chapter is Jesus speaking to his Father. I think it's absolutely amazing, stunning really, that we can listen in on one of Jesus' most important conversations that he ever had with his Father in heaven. But even better than this, in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of this biggest crisis in his life and the lives of his disciples, Jesus actually prays for us. 
Now stop and think about that for a second. Midst of all this chaos, all this trauma, Jesus looks forward into the future and he sees you sitting in these seats, he sees me, he sees people all around the world today who are trying to follow Jesus and he knows that we are going to experience our own struggle, we're going to get punched in the mouth and we're going to have trouble figuring out the way forward and so Jesus prays for us. If you walked in here this morning and maybe you got a fat lip or maybe you're just struggling to figure out your next move, I think Jesus has something to say to us this morning, especially for you. So the first 19 verses, Jesus is praying for his disciples. It's in verse 20 that he actually turns and starts to pray for us. I encourage you to read the first 19 verses, but we're going to pick it up in verse 20. And and I encourage you to pay attention because I think what he prays may not be what we're expecting him to pray for. Here's what he says. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, not for my disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we're one, I in them and you in me, so that we may be brought to complete unity Then the world will know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. This is incredible. Jesus turns to his father and he says, what I want more than anything is for the world to understand just how much you love them and that you sent me to show them. That's my greatest desire. And then Jesus says, not once, but twice, that the way the world will come to know this is when his followers become one with God and one with each other. And not just a little bit of oneness. It's when they're brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that God loves them the same way God loves his own Son. What? Oneness is, is the key? Like, like, how does this even work? Jesus is praying that, that people like us, right, in, in a culture that specializes in individualism, that's full of people like myself who tend to be selfish at times, maybe a lot of times, <laughs> that, that, that our unity, that our oneness together is the sign that the rest of the world will receive to know that God loves the world just as much as God loves his own son, Jesus. That's the plan? How do we even know such oneness is possible? Do we even know what this oneness might look like? On the other hand, Stick with me for a second. What could be more countercultural than followers being together as one in the midst of a culture that's so divided on issues of politics and race and spiritual beliefs and gender and sexuality? What could be more compelling than followers of Jesus who have experienced his love and his forgiveness 
going out into the world and loving the world the same way Jesus did, being one with him and his Father. Can you imagine that? People of all different backgrounds and, and denominations and different churches and different beliefs kind of laying down their own opinions or their own views or their own rights, their own privileges in order to just go and love people and let them know that they're loved by God, to, to forgive them, to reconcile with them, to speak well of them, even those who maybe don't deserve it. So I think that would take the work of God. And I think that would change the world. So I want to ask us this morning, how does our, how's our oneness looking right now? Maybe just even with our friends and with our families. See, I think that, that would be something worth praying for. Whenever I do weddings, uh, I remind the couple that uh, the two are becoming one. Uh, husband and wife becoming one flesh. And, and I say, you know, like, I don't even pretend to understand what all this means. Um, Paul calls it a profound mystery, which means I don't think we can box it in too much, but what I think I do understand is that only God can take two people and make them one. So God's responsible for forming oneness, and just as important, it's God has a purpose. It's, it, the oneness is for him. He's got a purpose for your marriage that's more than just your happiness and your love for one another. And I share with them what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about, uh, about marriage, and he basically says the couple's being called to a, a level of, of personal responsibility, and that their oneness will paint for the world a picture of Christ's love. And things get kind of serious in that moment in the wedding. But I'm quick to remind them that if this is true, then it stands to reason that God wants more for your marriage than you do. And that if God wants more for your marriage, then he wants to be intimately involved. He wants to be personally there to provide you with everything you need, the grace, the strength, the mercy, the love, so that you can experience this oneness with him and have the best possible marriage with each other. Why do I share that with you this morning? Because I think Jesus is praying for the same thing for us, that we could have this same level of intimacy and oneness that he has shared with his Father since before the beginning of time. And not later when we die, but right now while we're alive. Jesus wants his followers he wants more for his followers than we want for ourselves. He wants us to experience and be united with him and his father as well as with each other. And that means that he promises to be with us, to help make that happen. See, God sent Jesus to initiate a relationship with us, that we could be in a relationship with him because God loves us and he wants to share his love with us. So how is your relationship with the father and son today. For oneness to have a chance, it has to flow out of this relationship with the Father and the Son. Jesus' prayer is a, is a plea to his Father to help his disciples and help us live into and out of this relationship so that we can find a way forward after getting punched in the mouth. I think Jesus is basically putting the ball back in his Father's hands saying, I know they're going to need your help in order to be one with us and one with each other. And then the way we see God answer this prayer, we look and we see God just, just at work to give the disciples one heart and one body and one mind. And it gives us a picture, I believe, for our way forward today. Because God didn't just protect this group of early followers. He actually used their oneness 
to move his kingdom forward and further up and further into our own world. The early disciples experienced the love and forgiveness, the transformational power of Jesus, and they became one with him and his father in the way they went about loving others like Jesus did. There was so much hate, so much persecution of these early followers of Jesus after Jesus died. It was intense. And so the the only way that they could move forward was basically basically one relationship at a time, to love one person at a time in their their own home, uh, in, in their marketplace, in their neighborhoods relationships. It wasn't, it wasn't political power. There wasn't a religious institution for them to grab hold of. It was just go and love people one at a time. And the love that they shared in those relationships changed the world. They just loved like Jesus did. They, they, they watched Jesus. They'd spent time with Jesus. They'd seen him spend time with his father. And so they did the same. They went and they, they prayed often together. They, they'd seen him submit seen Jesus submit to his Father's will and even to the point of laying down his own life. So they did the same. Many of them were martyred for their faith. They'd seen him receive power from his Father. And when Jesus received power, what did he do with that power? He used it to bless others, to serve those who were in need. See, they were transformed by that love and that power and that forgiveness. And it formed in them one heart. And the disciples moved forward, following Jesus' example, with this one heart. They made love, Jesus' love, the most visible thing in their lives. And it sounds so simple. But man, we know it's not, don't we? Many of us are familiar with the way that they cared for those who were sick, uh, the widows and the orphans. We can read in the book of Acts about how they cared for the poor. We, we, if you know history, we know that in the third century there was this great plague that swept over uh, the earth and, and many of Jesus' followers stood out because they were the ones who went to help those who were sick and, and often sacrificed their own lives and nursing other people back to health. And that's amazing. But there was something even more spectacular that stood out to the people back in those days. And Celsus, who was a, a Greek historian philosopher in the second century, he he writes about this. And, and Celsus was a guy who was opposed to Christianity. He did not like Christians. In fact, he said, Christians are ruining the world. And this is what he said. He said, this is how they did it. This is how they were undermining the rest of the world. In a world divided by gender and education and religion and ethnicity and socioeconomics, Christians moved forward by living out of their belief that being one in Jesus means that all of these other man-made divisions can no longer exist in the community of God. That all are one in Christ. That's what stood out to Celsus. He pointed to things like, like Paul said, how our primary identity is now as a child of God. There are no longer Jews or Greeks or superiors or inferiors or males or females. Everyone is one and the same in Jesus. And they didn't challenge divisions through politics. They just followed Jesus. Jesus said it included women and the poor. He'd embraced children. He healed lepers, loved sinners. He included the excluded. So they did too. They challenged inequalities by welcoming outsiders. And instead of angling or undermining worldly power, they just prayed for God's power. 
And as they received God's power, they did the same thing as Jesus. They just gave it away in service of others. And that oneness of heart led to a great oneness in mission. It created incredible movement in the world, impacting one relationship at a time, one house, one business, literally changing the world. I think about our culture today, a culture that's so rapidly changing all around us. Think about our own plague, our own pandemic, right, where so many people are experiencing isolation and grief and pain. Think about our own divisions in our world today, many of them the same as back then. How might taking on this way of Jesus and his early followers provide a way forward for us, especially as we think about emerging from this pandemic? How might this lead us in finding a way forward? How might we need to resist some of the patterns of this world and make Jesus' love more visible in one or two of our relationships? See, I think our way forward depends far more on this than on any political decision or any religious rule we could, we could make up in our day. How will we make the love of Jesus the most visible thing in our lives? You know, early followers didn't just do this in their families or their neighborhoods or the marketplace. They also formed one body, the church. And uh, they worshiped together. They served one another really, really well. And um, they did a lot of this out of their houses. So it's interesting. They didn't have big church buildings to go to to worship together. They, they, just, they met in people's houses and they shared meals together and they, and they worshiped together. They sang songs. They shared resources. They shared their strengths and their gifts to help one another. They, they prayed with and they prayed for one another. And they depended on these times together, these times of worship as a way to, to keep their lives centered on their oneness and their oneness with God. And they used Jesus' teachings to actually inform uh, their, their behaviors and their standards of how they were going to react and, and respond to people in their relationships. And they did this so well that the Roman government is actually recorded as saying, we wish that our religion... That our, that our government's religion could actually do as well as the Christians are doing in terms of forming people and shaping people in the way they behave morally as well as in how they treat people who are on the margins. Of course, the Christians didn't always behave well. They did things wrong. They didn't always agree. But the other thing that stood out to the Romans and the government was, was how they'd forgive one another when someone behaved badly how they would reconcile with one another, how they would speak highly of one another. And then the other thing was these feasts they would have. They were so different than the parties that were being thrown uh, around the rest of the city and the rest of the area. These, these feasts centered on gratitude and on love and on, and on peace. And so they were so intriguing that people outside of Christianity would ask about these feasts that they had. And the Christians would invite them to come be part of the feast. And they invited them to stay for worship. They'd answer their questions about what was going on. Can you imagine that? We hope everyone's okay. Can you imagine this? Like, like Christians living in such a way that outsiders want to be invited in to what's going on and to be part of their feasts and part of their enjoyment. Do you have a group like that? If you don't, I encourage you to maybe find some friends or neighbors or somebody that you like spending time with and start to form 
this kind of group. A lot of times we don't realize how important these groups are until life punches us in the mouth. Uh, I know when my father passed away a few weeks ago, just how, I can't even put into words how important it was as, as members of our small group just showed up with food, just great comfort food and with prayers and with encouragement, other people just sending notes and sharing stories and, and just helping us. I can't put into words how much it helps you move forward in a time of grief, how it makes it less lonely, how it makes it more hopeful. So we desperately need each other. And of course, as people live this out, right, this, this oneness is expressing itself in these ways, and a lot of people wanted to come in and be part of that, and so the church started growing. And, and these people would come in, and they'd come in without language or without a history of really understanding what God's story is or where Jesus fit into God's story. And they'd come in with their own beliefs and their own practices of how they worshiped other gods and things. And so then the church started thinking, you know, we've got to figure out a way forward, not just with one heart and one body, but we've got to figure out a way forward with one mind. Like we can't just accommodate to the culture, but we also don't want to condemn the culture. How do we do this? How do we move forward in this way? What a great question. What a great question for us today. How do we move forward with one mind? See, the truth is early Christians didn't set out to form a big organization or institution and and go out and change the world. That was just a consequence of something else, something that was fundamental, something that was unique, something that was powerful. And that was their one shared belief that Jesus was different than anybody else the world had ever encountered. That's what their one heart and their one body flowed out of was this one belief. It was the insistence by Jesus' disciples, that Jesus was God's son. And therefore, he and God are one. It was this central belief that gave their movement its uniqueness and its power. The disciples had walked with Jesus. They'd experienced him. He'd provided a glimpse of how his father's kingdom works. They'd seen God's kingdom come through Jesus, and they believed that this kingdom, that this reality was the truest, most important, biggest reality there is, and if they would stay in relationship with Jesus, continue to follow and walk with Jesus, this kingdom would continue to expand in our world today. One of the things they did to help them was they developed creeds to stay grounded in this foundational belief. Just simple statements of belief that they would recite together And it not only kept them grounded in one mind, but it also helped others who were outsiders to understand what it was that was their core belief. Helped newcomers get oriented to what the core belief is. And you see this, Paul actually do this early on in in his letter to the first Corinthians. It happens really early in the church. And he says, you know, I want to remind you of the good news and and what, what I brought to you as of first importance. And then he writes this. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of who are still living, so you can go and find out for yourselves. And later, we see other creeds start to pop up. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all these others. And the amazing thing to me about these creeds is they weren't like being imposed on the church by some council or some board. Actually, these 
individual churches were coming up with these creeds on their own, often separated by miles and separated by language and by, by culture, and they're coming up with these same core set of beliefs that kept them united in mind. And out of that came their heart and their body. It was like, here's the main thing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. The other thing they did was they prayed the Lord's Prayer together frequently. In fact, that was like a center of their time of worship together. Many of them believe that like, that's the whole Bible summed up in the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray. And so it kept them grounded in, in Jesus' own vision of the kingdom. It was the heart and the mind that kept the body together. You know, Orchard, we still believe that engaging the Bible is a really important part of us to stay grounded in those teachings of Jesus and in the experiences that the disciples had with him. And, and it, it keeps us rooted and grounded in Jesus' love. It helps us to know the way forward in faith and in our mission. And I know there's a lot of things that people disagree over, even in the Bible. And that's okay. But at Orchard Hill Church, we need to be reminded, as a big tent church, as one church on, on three different campuses, three different communities with different needs, we don't always agree on every issue, every topic, there are still some truths that bind us together and that keep us one. And they can be found in both the Apostles' Creed and in the Lord's Prayer. So I thought today as we bring this part of our service to a close, we could stand and we could recite this creed and say this prayer together. My hope is that as we speak these words, as we listen to these words, we can be reminded of the foundation of our oneness with God, with his son Jesus, and with one another. And we can let that work into our lives and it can begin to be worked out of our lives as we leave here today. So I invite you to please stand where you are. The words of the creed and... The prayer will be on the screen, and I invite us to speak these together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.